Let's pray together. Father God, as we come before you and before your word and just have this great image of your glorious judgment of the whole world, may this strike into our hearts the seriousness of this, but also strike into our hearts your great and abundant love for people who, though we deserve judgment, you would take that judgment upon yourself. Lord God, you are good. You're worthy of the praise of all the nations of the world. And one day it will happen. And so, Lord God, we look forward to that with great anticipation. And today we ask that you would lift up our hearts to that moment, that that might become the focus of our lives. And now we ask that you would give us wisdom to know how we ought to respond, that our hearts would be open to you, and that we know we cannot do that by ourselves. So minister to us in the Holy Spirit. Help us to see Jesus and his great glory today, and that to capture the vision of our hearts more than anything else. We ask that today in Jesus' name. Amen. 2004 was a good year, for me at least, because in 2004 Port Adelaide got to the grand final, and won. And I remember the atmosphere. I didn't actually go, get to go to the grand final. I was pretty disappointed. My parents only got two tickets, and that was for them. But I did experience the preliminary final here uh, at Westlakes, for those of you who remember it. And gee, there was atmosphere. You could just... And that's the thing I remember. I don't remember the score. I know that we won. I don't remember the score. I, don't, I remember a couple of the players... But I remember that atmosphere. You could just feel it in that place. I mean, if you would have been somewhere where there was a lot of people and there was a focus of attention and you just felt like you were part of it. And today in our reading, we have the greatest moment in all of history when Jesus is sitting upon his glorious throne, his armies of angels are surrounding him and every person from every nation of the world who has ever lived is present. Imagine that. Imagine the awe. Imagine the atmosphere. And the focus is not on a football game, as you know, many of us experience that. Maybe some have experienced that at a protest and uh, f- fighting for rights about particular things. The focus is not on our rights. The focus is not uh, even on maybe a political rally or something like that. You know, that we would get something better for the season ahead. No, the focus is on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the highest in the whole universe, Jesus Christ, God himself, sitting on the glorious throne. That is the picture that we are given today. And we are given a picture different to the one which we head into at Easter time when Jesus comes uh, to a cross, sort of lowly, despised by many, a shameful situation. Jesus, the suffering servant who would bear the sins of the world. This is not the picture that we see in our text today. The picture we see is of Jesus, the glorious judge before every person. And it is, Jesus is saying, this day will come. And he will be the one sitting on the throne, Jesus the judge. And so 
This morning, we're going to learn a bit more about Jesus the judge. We're going to learn about the returning judge, firstly. Secondly, we'll look at the separating judge. And there's a couple of surprises in there for us. And thirdly, we'll see the merciful judge that Jesus is. So beginning with the returning judge. This picture uh, given to us in verse 31 and 32 is majestic. It's, we can't even really imagine it. That the grandness of Jesus. And yet that is the vision that we are giving. And it should actually capture our hearts as I prayed earlier. It should be a vision that is bigger than anything else you want or desire if you're a Christian. If you don't know Jesus, or if you're not a Christian, or you're in fact in an unsure state, might be a little bit scary. You might be a bit sceptical. Will this really happen? Is this something that the world has looked forward to? Maybe you've never heard this before in your life. And yet this is the promise of the Bible as any other promise in the Bible is true. This one is also true that Jesus will return in this way in great glory and he will come to judge the nations of the earth as the just judge of all the earth. Now many of us have in our mind's eye a day of judgment, a different sort of day of judgment in our mind that we actually base our lives on. I don't know, there was something that came out in sort of self-help self-help literature in the past 50 years or so that got you to imagine uh, your funeral. Not in a sort of morbid way, but in a sort of positive way. You would imagine people speaking about you at your funeral and the sorts of things they might say, the eulogies that they might share about you. And that you would, you know, hopefully have people saying good things about you on this day when your life is sort of judged before your friends and family and those who love you. And so when that happens... You know, you want people to say good things, wouldn't you? And so somewhere along the line, people were encouraged to make sure you do a good job now because people are going to speak of you on your day of judgment at your funeral, for example. Some of us also would imagine at our better moments that we want to leave a legacy behind. We want to imagine that life has been for something important. We want to imagine that we've made a difference in the world because it's very hard to live thinking that everything I'm doing is pointless and meaningless. And so we want to think that there is something that we have done to improve the world. We might even aspire to have our name sort of written down somewhere with a list of people or in the history books or as we have in North Terrace in Adelaide, a plaque in the ground that might have our name on it said, I did something good. And so we imagine ourselves to have a judgment written on a plaque somewhere that this person, myself, did something good. And so often then we have some sort of picture in our mind's eye, a day of judgment, that everything would have worked out well. And yet Jesus... Jesus has a greater day of judgment for us. And in fact, this is the one that he wants us to be focused on. Why? Why would Jesus want us to be focused on his day of judgment? As you see this throughout the New Testament letters, and particularly the Apostle Paul, is focused on the day of Christ Jesus. Everything, everything he prays for the churches is often praying that they'll be well prepared for what? The day of Christ Jesus. This day. 
Why is that? Because what you imagine your life to be, your great focus, your great day of judgment, so the self-help writers were somewhat right in saying that that is what you will focus on. That's how you will live for. You will live for the judgment of that day. And so if you're living for the judgment of you know, your friends and family or for your peer group or for those that you look up to, then you will you know, lift your life in accordance with them. But if you're living your life for Jesus' judgment, well, you will live for him. Your life will be shaped by him. Let me put it this way. What we imagine we will live for. That narrative that we tell ourselves about what life is about, whose glory are we living for, that is what we will live for. And I've got to say that many of us are captured by something lower than it should be. Many of our lives are captured by things that are not that important at the end of the day. We're captured by lower things when we should have a much higher vision of Jesus and his great glory coming to bless his people. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Wow! We should be so excited about that. That should be the one vision of our life. That we should be there on that day for Jesus and his glory. And when we get that right, we will actually love and serve the other people in our life as we ought to. Because we will live for Jesus' glory and our life will look like his life. Of course, as we consider these things and begin to make an examination, perhaps a small judgment on our own life, we might realise we've actually failed to do this. As I look back, uh, and I grew up in a Christian family, so my um, dad was actually a pastor, and uh, you know, so sort of grew up knowing about Christian things. And so my uh, understanding of Christianity was, well, you know, you you know the right things, you do the right things, and then God will look after you. But as I got older, particularly as I came to the end of primary school, I realised that I wasn't just thinking about, you know, God's judgment of me and his approval of me. I actually really cared about the judgment and the, the approval of my peers at school. I actually cared more about the court of social opinion more than the court of God. What this meant in my life was that as I came to the end of school, I became utterly embarrassed that people might think I was a Christian, that people might think I went to church. And so clearly my heart was in love with what others thought of me. I wanted them to approve me And of course, being a Christian, generally speaking, is not a cool thing. And so, I served that vision of life from that court of judgment of my friends rather than the court of judgment of God. And so, I rejected God. I turned away from God. I gave my life to the approval of others. And I lived like that for a number of years. And it was quite easy to do, actually, It was, in fact, probably easier than being a Christian. Much easier. I wasn't embarrassed. I had to work pretty hard, mind you, to make people like me and to keep courting their uh, good opinion of me. 
But then I met another Christian, a Christian who said, do you want to come to church? Or in fact, it was, do you want to come to youth group at that time? I was a sort of young teenager. And I decided to come along and, you know, I thought, oh, I know the religious stuff, right? I've been around church when I was growing up, you know, family members were involved in ministry. I know the deal. Got the knowledge, know the right answers to say. But, you know, something struck me about these young people that I was hanging out with at this youth group that I attended. I didn't say yes the first time, by the way. They'd asked me a few times before I went. The thing that struck me about these people is they didn't care about the approval of other people. It wasn't the number one thing in their life. They respected others, sure. But they were happy to be Christians. They loved God. They thought Jesus was cool and that was enough. And I was blown away. That was the thing that grabbed me. They were living as if Jesus was real and they didn't care if that was uncool or unpopular or anything else. And this thought that Jesus is greater than anything else really got into my heart. And I realized, hey, I actually don't think that. I've failed at this in my life. I've failed. And so if I was to stand before God in judgment, I would come under his judgment. I would be separated from him. I'd be on the side of the goats and not the sheep, as we see in the text. And so what Jesus did on a special day, a day of freedom for me, was he showed me that he loved me. He showed me that he was willing to send his son to die for my sins, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that his vision of life is far better than anything else I could live for. And he called me to surrender myself to him. And so I did. And I've got to tell you, it was like night and day. I was once embarrassed had wanted nothing to do with God. And then the next day, after this conversion, I was totally enthralled by God and who he is and this great vision of Jesus, high and lifted up and willing to do anything for him. I lived in country Victoria at the time and, a, uh, and I was at a high school there. And my family was just preparing to move uh, to South Australia, to Adelaide. And I had this wonderful vision at the time that, you know, though I was a bit nervous about changing high schools, and, you know, those of you who've changed high schools, you know, know the feeling of needing to make new friends and, you know, the, the fear that comes into your heart. I was excited. I'm like, I'm going as a missionary to Adelaide. That's what I said to everyone around me. I got them to pray, pray for me as I embarked with my family as a missionary to Adelaide. Unfortunately, the story goes downhill from there. Because I did. Because the, the funny thing is, the, that idol of my heart, that desire for the approval of others, actually got dressed up in religious clothing. And so what happened was, and this is a great danger, I would go to church on Sunday, be a part of a Christian youth group for teenagers on a Friday, but I would look nothing like that with my school friends. And I became embarrassed once again of God. And this is where you could see on the one hand that I looked like a Christian because I was doing all the right things but I was just dressed up in religious clothing and I was willing to take it all off and be who I really wanted to be and serve those whom I was seeking approval from at my school. This was a very uh, challenging time because for me, 
I didn't realise, but I'd become a hypocrite. I said I was one thing, and yet I was doing another. I was keeping up appearances, right, before other Christians. And yet in my own private time, I was not acting as one of God's people. It's a dangerous situation to be in. And the reason that happened is because my vision had shifted. It can happen for Christian people too. Your vision can shift from having your sights set on God and Jesus and his great glorious return and living for him and it can be set on lower things. And when your sights are set, your vision of life is set on lower courts of opinion, you will live for them like I did. And I, at that time, had become a hypocrite. And so, for us, I'm encouraging you, don't do that. Set your sights on something bigger and something greater. Set your sights on Jesus and his wondrous return, and you will live for it. That is the returning judge. Let's move now to look at the separating judge. Now, this is where it gets a little bit scary in the text. We see that Jesus is willing to separate people who look maybe quite similar. It's interesting that um, Jesus uses the illustration of sheep and goats because often uh, herds of sheep and flocks, maybe of sheep and goats, would mix together. But at some point a shepherd would come along and take his sheep with him and separate the goats away from them because he knew whose were his. And they knew his voice, interestingly. And so we see that uh, Jesus, on that last day, will be a separating God. He will separate his people from those who are not his people. And he actually gives us a definition of what he's looking for in his people. What he knows his people to be like. He knows their characteristics. He knows the way that they behave. And we see it in really three categories. We see, firstly, that the people of Jesus, those who are called sheep in the text, care for people's physical needs. And interestingly, it's not just people, it's God's people's physical needs. They love others in the church. This text is really clear. It says in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is saying that those who care for the physical needs of others in the church or in the Christian family they are the ones that have the characteristics of his people. So they meet the physical needs, those who are hungry and those who are thirsty. And that is our calling as God's people, to meet the physical needs of others in the church. Secondly, we see meeting the social needs. We see those who are strangers being welcomed by God's people. We are called as Christians to welcome, to meet the social needs of others. Not just to be on our own agenda, not just to be feeding ourselves. We're supposed to feed others. We're supposed to welcome others, welcome strangers. And thirdly, and quite profoundly, we see a church that is called to cover the shame of others. You see, those who are naked are clothed. Those who are sick are visited and cared for. Those who are in prison are visited and cared for. Those who are in shameful and isolating situations in life, when they're Christians, are cared for by other Christians. That shows that you are a sheep 
and not a goat. Now, this is really interesting because in the text, there's actually a surprise that comes out. Those that are caring for their Christian brothers and sisters with their physical needs, their social needs, and covering their shame, they're surprised when Jesus says, hey, you know, see that Christian person that you, know, you went and helped out? You see those people that, uh, Christian people that came and lived with you when they were in hard times? See those pe- people that you made friends with just because they're Christians? You know, those things that you did for other Christians, you did for me. Because the Christians who were doing it didn't realize. They were just doing it because that was who they, they were. But they didn't realize that they were actually doing it for Jesus. It sort of welled up out of love for their heart. And Jesus is saying he takes it personally. When you care for the physical, the social needs, and you cover the shame of other Christians. And this isn't to say we don't care for those outside the church. Of course we do. But Jesus is saying there is a particular priority amongst God's family to care for one another. And so Jesus takes it personally when we do that. For great good. He loves it. Because he said, if you did it for them, you did it for me. Of course, the reverse is also true. For those who refuse to care for the physical needs, the social needs, or to cover the shame of other Christians... Jesus takes that personally also. This speaks to something quite interesting. And it's called the sin of omission. So often when we uh, think about our lives, we think about uh, and think about you know, whether we've sinned or not. We think about the bad things that we do do. Oh, you know, like I swore that time. Oh, I was angry in my heart. Or I you know, was lustful. You know, or, you know, I've been greedy, or I've been judgmental. And sure, those are sins, but the ones that Jesus is pointing out here are the things that we should have done that we didn't do. And particularly, he's talking about the love that Christians should have for one another. That is what Jesus takes personally on his day of judgment, that great day. Isn't that interesting? That's just what this text is talking about. Jesus takes personally when you don't do the things you should have done. Now, this brings up a bit of a problem uh, for people because often we are not judging ourselves by God's standards, but we're judging ourselves by our own standards. So we think, oh, it's okay, I'm a good person. You know, and sometimes in our heads we'll weigh up the good versus the bad and think, well, if I do a few more good things, then that will cover the bad things I've done in my life. And so we measure ourselves by some sort of self-imposed standard. And of course, when we don't meet that, sometimes we'll shift the goalposts. You know, and then when we don't meet our standards, maybe we'll justify our behavior. Well, you know, I'm too busy right now to help anyone. I've got too much going on myself. I've got too many responsibilities already. I, I, I work a lot. I've got you know, family that I've, I've got to care for. And, and so we might justify why we're not doing perhaps what we ought to do. Reminded me of um, a situation in one of the Tintin books, Destination Moon. I don't know if you've read that. And... Uh, 
Captain Haddock and Professor Calculus, they're sort of preparing to go on a, a moon mission together. And Captain Haddock is getting very frustrated with Professor Calculus because Calculus just has got a hearing problem. And he often does really silly and awkward things. And so at one point, uh, Haddock goes to Calculus. He says, will you stop acting the goat? And, well, Professor Calculus hears that one and he cracks it. He totally blows his lid. He goes, acting the goat? Me? And he goes on to justify everything that he's ever done. In a fit of rage, he goes through justifying all of his behaviour. And it kind of ends comically because he bangs his head and forgets who he is. So it's quite a funny end of the story. But the point of it is, is that when the things that we, you know, the behaviours that we have are challenged, we want to justify ourselves. But who, under whose court or law do we justify our behaviour? Is it by God's or is it by our own? And so often we think, well, as long as I haven't done this, or I'm not as bad as so-and-so, so I'm okay. And we justify and excuse and actually make judgments upon ourselves rather than deferring to a God who always judges justly. And sometimes... Sometimes if we're really honest, we'll look at our lives and the things perhaps we should have done and often they are our deepest regrets. Sometimes we'll look at our lives and, and go, you know, when, when we're not in a self-justifying mood, we'll go, man, oh, I've like really missed a few things in my life. There's a whole lot of stuff I should have done that I didn't. It's, a, it's a, like a parent's regret with their children sometimes. Now, they should have done something better. A child's regret, perhaps, with their parents. You know, a regret that there was a good opportunity and he didn't take it at the time. But the question is, why do we even care about these things? Why do we care and have deep regrets in our hearts when we judge ourselves? What's going on there? We do have this sense whether we judge ourselves by our own standards or we judge ourselves by God's standards, that there is a judgment taking place. And whether we're religious or not, that sense is actually right. That's what we see in the Bible today. We see that our sense of justification for you know, proving that we've done the right thing or haven't done the wrong things, that sense that... you know. Our life needs to mean something at some point is actually true. But it's actually to a much higher standard. And it will be before someone far greater if we look to the vision that Jesus has shown us here. One of the uh, difficult things about separating goats and sheep is that sometimes they look like each other. In fact, there is a, a sheep called the African Damara sheep that looks exactly like a goat. That's a problem, isn't it? Because if you're going to separate sheep from goats, you've got to know which one's which, don't you? Uh, in the 1850s, I was a pastor in London. His name was Charles Spurgeon, and he was commenting on a conversation he had uh, with another pastor who was in the East End of London. And this other pastor was saying it's quite obvious when someone from the lower class sort of leaves Christianity 
because they, pre- and he, they have a, had a class system back then, so we need to incorporate that into our thinking. We don't have that so much in Australia. We're a meritocracy. So they, imag- they said that when people from a lower class, those who were sort of often drunk or their lives were full of debauchery and you know, like they were very immoral in their lives, it was quite clear when they left Christianity uh, because they just went back to doing whatever they were doing before. They wouldn't have gone to church anyway, and so they just stopped going to church and go back to how they were living before. But they were actually saying that this is far more difficult and dangerous when you have moral people who become Christians, but then fall away. Because you know what? They keep doing the same stuff. They keep going to church. They keep up religious appearances. They keep living a moral and good life. And yet in their hearts, they have departed from God. The great problem was that moral people were religious by nature. They continued in the church. They looked like a Christian. The lights were on, but no one was home. And so Jesus is a shepherd who knows all of his sheep. He can tell the goat from the sheep. He can tell the ones who are just a moral religious person versus those who are really his people. Because you can do sheepish things, but still be a goat. And you can do goatish things and still be a sheep. And so how can we have a just judgment here? Well, Jesus, the shepherd, will separate those who are his people and those who are not on the basis of whose they are, not just on the basis of how they've lived. This is very important because there will only be two categories on that last day. Do you notice there's not a third, there's no purgatory, you know, there's no court of appeals, there's no complaints department. There's two categories on the last day. Those on the right who are Jesus' sheep, his people. They live like his people. He knows that they're his because they are his sheep. And those on his left are the goats. And on that last day, it is too late. There will be an eternal separation. Not just a separation that Jesus makes between the sheep and the goats, but an eternal separation we see in our text. An eternal punishment. A punishment which is centred on a complete absence of the, the goodness of the presence of God. And when there is no goodness, there is nothing there that is worth staying for. Even the goats that look like sheep will be separated because they are not his. But not one sheep will be lost. So we've looked so far at the returning of Jesus as a great judge and lifting our vision that we might not live for the court of public opinion or social opinion, but live for the court of Jesus at his great return. And when we do that, the rest of the things in our lives will be rightly ordered. We will love those in the church. We will care for those 
in the church and their physical needs. We will take care of people's social needs. We will cover the shame of others. We've looked at the separating judge, one who is exacting and perfect, one who does what is right every time, one who makes sure that his people are his and those who are not his people are not there. And now we look finally to the merciful judge. It's interesting that Jesus uh, teaches on all of these things, but he's actually, this is like well in the future. I mean, we're 2,000 years past this moment and this day of judgment has not yet happened, aren't we? And Jesus was actually staring down the barrel of a different day. Jesus was staring down the barrel of a day of mercy. So you see, before the day of judgment comes the day of mercy. You see, Jesus, the judge, the, I, mean, I mean, the story of the Gospels really is that Jesus, the great judge of all the universe, steps down into humanity, you know, to actually live a life doing all the things that we ought to have done. I mean, you look at his life, you look at the way that he cared for people's physical needs. He fed the 5,000. I mean, Jesus literally cared for people's physical needs. You see how Jesus cared for people's social needs. He created a family of people around him, of people from all sorts of mixed backgrounds, people whom others would have excluded. Jesus welcomed. You see, Jesus covering the shame of others, those who are in shameful positions in their life, Jesus welcomes them, them in, is willing to grant them forgiveness of sin and a new life. So we see this great God of judgment coming down into our world and living the life, doing the things we ought to do. Jesus omitted nothing. We see his utter perfection, his utter beauty revealed in his humanity, that God became a man in Jesus. But more than that, Jesus goes to a cross to bear the penalty for sins. Jesus went to the cross to bear the penalty for the sins of omission. Think about it. At this point in this text, what we've just written, I've just read, that has been written, is that every person who hasn't done the things they ought to do will be judged on the basis of it. And yet Jesus, when he went to the cross, is saying, I will bear that consequence for you. I will take that judgment. Jesus, at that moment, is the one who bears the just judgment of God and is God himself. And so before the day of judgment comes a day of mercy. And one of the amazing things about the Bible, and particularly the Gospels, is that we see that Jesus is the most merciful judge ever in the history of humanity and that will ever be. There is no one as merciful from, as he is. No one even comes close. He is willing to take all of your sin. Everything you should have done that you didn't do, the consequence of that, the offense to God, Jesus will take all of it upon himself, even to the person who has racked up a lot. Even to the person who says, I'm not worthy, Jesus goes, I know. He'll take the lot. And you'll become one of his people and he will separate you as one of his own. 
There is no one more merciful than Jesus. And there is no one who has such an offer. Can you imagine? He'll wipe the slate clean for you. And you will be on that day of judgment and you will not be worried about where you're going to go. You'll be in awe and wonder at the King of Kings, your King of Kings on his glorious throne. We must also see that Jesus is also the most just judge of all the earth that is and will ever be. There is no one as just as Jesus is. There is no one who knows your heart better than you do, like Jesus. He knows his sheep and he knows his goats. He knows those that look like they're sheep, but they're not. And he knows those that have goatish habits sometimes, but are his sheep. Not one will be lost. He will never leave nor forsake his people. And so for us this morning, how great is the disaster if we reject what an awesome, merciful and just judge Jesus is. How great the disaster. Don't miss him. Don't miss how good he is. Don't miss the grand vision for your life that Jesus has. When you focus and zoom in on him. As we consider the merciful judge, we must consider how personally Jesus takes sin. I mean, he takes it personally in that if you don't do the things you ought to have done, he says, you should have done those things for me. And you didn't. He takes the neglect personally. We, we need to see that Jesus uh, takes the good works done, the love that's expressed for others of, in God's people personally. And we must see that Jesus takes our failure to do that personally upon himself too. If this morning you are thinking, I have not lived up to what I should have, I've not done the things I ought to have done. If this morning this is in your heart, this question, I have not done as I ought to do, the offer of the merciful judge stands before you today and he says, lay it on me. Lay it on his shoulders because he will take it. He will wear it on himself and lift your vision to a God who in great glory will judge all the nations of the earth. And live for him. Charles Spurgeon again comments on how this changes our hearts. This is what he says. He said, They fed the hungry, but sovereign grace had first fed them. They clothed the naked, but infinite love first clothed them. They went to the prison, but free grace had first set them free from a worse prison. They visited the sick, but the good physician in his infinite mercy first came and visited them. You see, you won't get this. You won't be able to love people like you ought to until you see how God has first loved you. It won't happen. And you'll be on the wrong side of Jesus' judgment. You will. You don't want to be there. It's not worth it. This is true. This is not just a pretend story. This is Jesus revealing what the end will be like. How terrible it is. How terrible it is to look like 
a sheep but still be a goat. Don't be there. Lay yourself upon the mercy of Jesus. Spurgeon goes on. The saints fed the hungry and clothed the naked because it gave them much pleasure to do so. They did it because they could not help doing it. Their new nature impelled them to do it. They did it because it was their delight to do good and was as much their element as a water for a fish or air for a bird. They did good for Christ's sake because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. It was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine that was your heart's content. That you're looking forward so much to a much bigger vision than the the greatest experience in a crowd you've ever had, the best atmosphere you've ever had. You have a much higher vision for life. That you'd do anything for him. I'll finish with this. I uh, mentioned part of my own story that uh, I'd sort of gotten over through coming to faith in Jesus uh, the living for the approval of others in the court of social opinion. And then I fell back into it and dressed it with religious clothing. Well, and it was actually for many years that I wrestled back and forth with this issue. For many years, right through to the end of high school and beyond, into my early adulthood. And I often was just living for what others thought of me, but still professing, to be one of Jesus' people. It's a dangerous position to be in because I was a hypocrite. And it was interesting because I got to a point in my life where I was so utterly frustrated because I would look and see things like this and go, I haven't done as I ought to have done. I would look at years. I just have wasted time not serving Jesus, serving in the for the court of social or public opinion and not serving a much greater court, a much greater vision. I'd say a witness that was damaged because people would see, you know, non-Christian people or Christian people would see my life and go, yeah, it's good in parts but not good in others. I was burdened, burdened by this. And yet there was a day, it was really a, a time, when filled with a sense of guilt, filled with a sense that I haven't lived as I ought to have lived, that I realised that Jesus was willing to take that personally upon his shoulders for me. That even if I professed that I was a Christian and hadn't lived as I ought to have lived, that even that that Jesus was willing to call me one of his sheep because he was willing as my shepherd to die for me. And I want to say to you this morning that if you are burdened, burdened by not having done what you ought to have done, then bring it to Jesus, your good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and lift your sights on a far more glorious vision. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you now in awe of Jesus, in utter awe that Jesus is worthy of praise of all the nations of the world. May we give our lives for him and his glory, lift our vision, 
Lord, set our sights too on your grace that we cannot achieve this by ourselves. We are not good in and of ourselves. We have messed up. We have not done as we ought to have done. And yet you, our great judge, were willing to humble yourself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, Lord Jesus, take our burdens now. Lift off our guilt. Forgive our sin. Renew us with a much higher vision of who you are. We might live for your glory on that last day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.